Hello, basketball fans, and welcome to the Dave and Dia podcast. Starting at center from Portland, the wily veteran, Dave Deckard. And at guard from Los Angeles, the patron saint of rainbows and unicorns, your podcast MVP, Dia Miller. Welcome back to Dave and Dia, a Blazer's Edge podcast. I'm Dia Miller. I'm here with Dave Deckert. It's not 10 o'clock at night. It's only 6 o'clock at night. So we should be a little more alive and refreshed. I am borrowing internet, so that problem is fixed. It's like a whole new world. You're not only borrowing internet, you're borrowing a microphone. Oh my gosh, your voice I know. is this so is like, clear. Oh. This looks like a professional. I look like a professional. Well, you I look always like look like a professional, but you're <laughs> Sound like, oh my gosh, just the dulcet tones of your voice ringing across the airwaves. Everyone's going to go, ooh, Dia. It's like we're in the same room. Yeah, except with uh, (laughs) less snacks. (laughs) <laughs> Dang, snacks sound really good. I've got my Diet Pepsi, but no, I, that, I've i thought about snacks for this, but then I think like it's not going to be a good situation. What is that? That is a Rockstar non-carbon- non-carbonated orange energy drink. It has slightly so like, less caffeine. It has like 120 milligrams of caffeine as opposed, as opposed to your big hitters to have like 300. So half the caffeine not, of a death drink, but still enough to keep me going. It's not fizzy? No, it's not fizzy, which is beautiful. So it's like, like orange juice? Yeah, after you've been running and stuff. It's kind of like fakey orange. It's not exactly orange juice. It's closer to McDonald's like orange drink, but it's not quite like as high C. Yeah, kind of. Except this is zero. Okay. This is like low cal. This is like 10 calories. So it's not. Yeah, this is not sounding good. Well, if you don't want to get addicted, you shouldn't try it. But yeah, it's really good. I like good. the fizz. I like carbonation. I crave the carbonation more than anything else, I think. I do, except, you know, carbonation and low-cal energy drinks is kind of... There are some that are good, like the the Monster Ultra Whites or Blues or Reds. Those are pretty good. And they have a mango one that's good. But if you get carbonation and any kind of, like, metallic or bad taste, the carbonation will just ram that down your throat terribly. It's like, ah, it's gross. And then you have to sip it like battery acid. So I like these. I cool them down, go running, drink this. It feels like you're drinking water, but you get a little extra. I can't do energy drinks. So there's something about the way my body metabolizes things or whatever. I can't. So like one time I had to do, I don't know if I've told this story on here or not before, but one time I had to do a medical procedure. My doctor thought I had a brain tumor. I don't. Um, but That's but cool. I had to have a CAT scan, I think it is, or an MRI or something like that. They put you in this thin, big tube thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm highly claustrophobic. So they gave me the option of having a sedative. They gave me the sedative. And by the time I went back there, the guy was just like, oh, okay, you should not have had that whole thing because I was loopy as could be. I mean, I was, the conversations were apparently quite entertaining. And we left and I went on this big rant about Kanye West. And then I told McDonald's that they had the best fries I've ever tasted in my life. It was like, I, I, I should not have things that have an impact. Like I can't do energy drinks. Like the what they do to normal people, they'll do like 20 times to me. I'll be hopping around and bouncing off walls way more than I should. So I stick to normal caffeine over here. Well, maybe you should have one before the show and then we can talk about Yeezy and Grimace on the, on the Dave and Dia podcast and hear you all looped it, up. 
I called him Jesus. I, I got confused and thought he renamed himself Jesus. And then it was a whole thing. I think I've posted the video on Twitter before. It's quite entertaining. Point There's of order. Video. I don't think Jesus would have married Kim Kardashian. I mean, I'm just I don't, thinking. I don't, I don't think Jesus would. Well, let's just not get into that conversation. Oh, well, that's mixing <laughs> my two worlds together. We had Blazer Media Day yesterday. Kanye West was not there. Yay, um, contending in but, the West, maybe. But Neil Olshay was, so oh, there's that. Oh, no, that's worse. <laughs> Neil Olshay had, you know, things to say. We all can kind of, I feel like, I feel like you or I could get up and probably predict everything that Neil Olshay is going to say. Everybody can. Um, They're putting out Olshay bingo cards. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're winning within the first five things he says. Yeah. So, I mean, the the one, the probably the the funniest takeaway to me from, and the fact that we're talking about this as funniest takeaways rather than anything else. But the funniest takeaway of what Neil said to me was uh, a direct quote is, this is probably the best depth we've had since we've built around dames in terms of guys, you know? And and the, the reason that that's funny is because if you, if you do like a quick Twitter search of Neil Olshay and the best depth we've had, you will find him saying that year after year after year. Guys, he's like, he's said that so many times. Well, yeah. with Neil Olshay, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, and better you know, and better and yeah, better, apparently. Exactly. Something's oh. getting deeper. I'm so painted as anti Olshay because I've been telling you he's full of crap since 2015. But I mean, for the record, for this podcast, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I did. For, for the whole first half of our podcast, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. And then I saw the light. And here we are. So call us, call us negative Neil people all you want. It's true. Yeah, well, <laughs> here's the thing. As usual with Olshay's statements, if you look at it at the right angle, it could be considered true. If you don't mind Norman Powell at small forward, because he's the highest scoring small forward that the Blazers have had since Nikola Batum, and the most diverse offensively. So he's clearly got talent there. Also, I would argue that if healthy, Larry Nance Jr. is one of the best bench players that the Blazers have had in the Lillard era. And that speaks as much to the Blazers bench as it does to Larry Nance Jr. But so if you look at literally narrow down to the, you know, fourth, fifth and sixth guy on the roster. And yes, I can buy that with those two in Covington. However, if you look at the entire roster, you look at the moves, okay, first of all, uh, Powell was there last year, Covington was there last year, so we're really banking a lot on Larry Nance Jr., but you also lost Ennis Cantor, which, you know, granted, we all knew his weaknesses, but at least he was a veteran, a real center. You had Carmelo Anthony, obviously, you know, I'm not in love with them, but Rodney Hood before you had Powell. Uh, Derek Jones Jr., eh, but I think you can make an argument that the Blazers were deeper last year. I mean, the Blazers were, you know, they had they had more depth. And certainly, I think you can argue if you go back to the Al-Faruq Aminu days, that they were probably right. deeper right. overall. So, I mean, again, it depends on how you're counting. And of course, Neil will count in whatever way makes it look best. Yeah, I think the thing to me is it's like the boy who cried wolf. Like you say this over and over and over and over every year, year after year after year after year. Like at what point do we stop taking you seriously? You, when when we continually are not winning a championship, you can't keep telling me that every year we're getting better. 
oh, we're better this year than we were last year. Oh, we're better this year than we were last year. Okay, but then we're still not winning. So you can't tell me that over and over again. You're you're the boy who cried wolf now. There are an enormous number of minimum contract players on this team, and there have to be, right? This is literally the years when you have to... The problem is those guys were supposed to be the smart guys that kind of continued the, the contending run, and we're, you know, it's like, oh, this will give us just a little more edge like the Lakers tend to do. That's not happening. These guys, half the roster is minimum contract players at this point. So you're actually really scraping to find some depth much beyond the seventh guy. And I think they're okay as long as they don't get injured. But that's going to show up pretty darn quick if somebody has to rest or, God forbid, if someone gets injured. I mean, if it's Nurk again... Boy, now you're starting Covington and Nance and Cody Zeller, some combination, two of the three. That's a little thin. And you only got one coming off the bench. That's a little thin. I mean, Patrick Patterson, Ben McLemore, Zeller himself, CJ Ellaby, Greg Brown III, Tony Snell. You don't really care about any of these guys. I mean, you can find reasons to like any of them, but nobody's, nobody cares. If, If you're holding a draft, these guys are not selected. Uh, anyway, right. right? You're just like s- scraping the bottom of the barrel at, at the end of your fantasy draft uh, on NBA 2K to like kind of fill up some spots with guys you like. That's what all those guys are. So I'm not entirely sure where the depth comes in other than I mean, in that narrow band. Does Neil even believe what he says anymore? Like, is this, is does he really truly believe that? Or is this just the company line that he's trying to keep everybody, you know, uh, look how good we're doing. Maybe he does. Maybe he believes it. Maybe this is really him saying like, hey, look how good I am at my job. I'm not sure what you mean by anymore. I don't think Neil has changed. (laughs) I mean, didn't we learn from Shaggy that, you know, wasn't me is the (laughs) Teflon explanation, no matter what happens. All right, And Neil is like the Shaggy of the NBA. I mean, it's just like, hey, you suck, wasn't me. (laughs) It's just over and over and over again. Of course. That's what happens when you're in a bad relationship. I mean, but we keep going on in this relationship with him. Nobody looks, (laughs) nobody does the DTMF to him. And uh, it's like. I think the fact that when I hit the point where I'm no longer optimistic about someone you know there's something off because i i can find i mean i try to give people the benefit of the doubt and i try to you know be optimistic overall and and we just we just hit a wall this summer where i just lost all optimism when it came to olshay man i don't know if you don't mind yeah i know well the problem is he speaks we leave him alone mostly when he's quiet but every time he speaks it shows up again just for the record let me read the players, and we'll we'll stop at Anthony Simons, who makes almost four million a year. Everybody else makes north of ten. But here's a, Andrew Nicholson. Of course, is a is a stretch provision that's killing them right now. But listen to this: Patrick Patterson, Tony Snell, Ben Lacklemore, Cody Zeller, Nasir Little. He's an exception. Quinn Cook, Dennis Smith Jr., Marquise Chris, C.J. Ellaby, Greg Brown the third. That's your ninth through 18th players on the roster right now. And of course, a couple of those are going to go. But 
you have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six players making more than five million, making more than four million, really, and the right. whole seventh through fifteenth players are all going to make four million and under. And you're saying, well, that's you know, that's smart. That's whatever. No, okay, it's not that. That's as smart that they got great players. They literally had to get players making minimum contracts right, in order right. to make this work. So the other thing that. Olshay said that I think is notable in this was clear. This is a direct quote again. Clearly, we were never going to be receptive to moving Dame. We're never going to be receptive to moving Dame. He's the bedrock of this organization and he's going to be here as long as he's happy and knows he has a chance to compete. One, you could have said this at the beginning of the summer when everybody was freaking the heck out. And two, I don't know if I buy this. I, I think. I think Neil wasn't open to it, but I think, you know, the second that Dame says he wants to go and starts pushing that agenda, this is going to be a whole other storyline. Yeah, Neil didn't say anything. This is classic Olsheism. We were never going to be receptive to moving Dame. Well, duh, and you're going to continue saying that until the day that you either choose to move him or have to move him, because why would you say, I'm really receptive to moving Dame and then drive right. down his value, right? Right. So there's there's nothing to that statement there. He's going to be here. Did we say he's going to be here forever? We're confident we can keep him for the long term. He's going to play as out his contract. As long as he's happy. No, as long as he's happy, which is exactly what what Dame said. So yeah. nothing changes. Like, he is very he's very good at saying a whole lot with the, while saying nothing at all. It literally does not if you look at it it doesn't change the narrative of, at all. It just appears to change the narrative. Yeah. I and, feel like how does I feel that, like Neil Go ahead. I feel like Neil missed his calling as a politician. Or a pastor. He'd be a really, one of those really wonderful, craptastic pastors <gasps> that convinces a lot of people about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ while ruining the entire concept of religion. Anyway, uh, look, what's he going to say? We're really open to trading you, Dame. <laughs> like Dame's up next, yeah. by the way. Hey, did yeah. you hear what Neil said? He said he's totally open to trading you. And Dame's like, wait, what? <laughs> okay, cracks his knuckles. Let me change my planned comments. Yeah, let's, you want to go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, this is just, okay. At what point have we had enough of this guy? I mean, I mean, and if his moves backed it up, whatever. I don't. I'm beyond caring at this point. I just I tune out, Neil. I'm beyond caring any, about I mean, anything he says. You're never going to find out anything significant from Neil Olshay. Every time he opens his mouth and you listen to him, you are wasting your time. The fact that it's not even people who follow the Blazers closely, like people outside of this, are now saying like this guy's a joke. It says something. It says something when, you know, people outside of Blazer World and Rip City and Blazers Media, you know, people that are that are not Blazer fans are seeing this. Because when you're not a fan of a team, a lot of times you don't follow this kind of stuff closely. You know, I'm not watching press conferences or media day for other teams all the time unless there's something big going on. You know, you watch what, what you're involved in as as fans and or whatever it is you're doing you don't necessarily watch all the teams and so for things like this to be circulating the internet from people who aren't even involved with the blazers or aren't blazers fans like that's telling all on its own right now to be fair he was probably going to get asked about this kind of stuff or did get asked about this kind of stuff so let's let's give him he had to answer something i get it also 
his actual record as a GM is a, is a separate discussion. And I, I don't think he's done that great either, but I don't, I'm not saying he's a terrible, terrible GM, although the Blazers are, are in a terrible, terrible situation right now. But I mean, look, are you saying he's a good one? No, I'm not saying he's a good one either. I'm saying this critique that I'm offering is literally of when he speaks. And if you listen to Neil Olshay at this point, when he speaks, that's on you. And if you, if, if you haven't figured out by now that you're not going to hear anything that's worth hearing, that's on you. Uh, like, I can't, I can't help you anymore if you're going to quote this guy and say, see, this is conclusive or this said something. Yeah. There's got, I don't have There's got to be other people him. who said something. Yes. Yeah, so, so next up, as far as this conversation goes, I don't, I don't think this is the order of it, but next up is Nurkic. You know, Nurk is one that going into last season, we really thought was going to be a game changer. He was going to, he was crucial to the team's play. And, and he proved that to be true. You know, when Nurk was on the team did well, when he was off the team struggled a little more. And at the end of the season, Nurk did, you know, when the, when the team got booted from the playoffs in the first round, Nurk did his media availability. And he basically said uh, that he wasn't, this is obviously paraphrasing, but he basically said that he wasn't sure that he would be returning, that he wasn't sure that this was the right fit for him anymore. Fast forward to, you know, now here we are going into media date. Nurk is returning. He is with the team. He said that he was unsure until this summer when Chauncey was hired and that that was a game changer for him. He has a history with Chauncey in Denver. And so basically he said that this is, again, a quote from Nurkic about Chauncey. He said, his plan to hold people accountable is something we not necessarily have over the years. You have more passing and plan to play more team basketball, not just too many iso ball, even if we have a luxury to do that. And then he talked about the fact that between Billups and the new assistant coach Roy Rogers, that he expects it to translate into more success on the defensive end. His quote is, we are going to be guaranteed better on defense and our offense was never the issue. So that's the first thing from Nurk, you know, talking about how the coaching changes are essentially going to drastically change the defense in which, which will in turn make them better. So, Dave, I'll let you I'll let you take this initially. And- Let's look at accountability. Who was the player that Terry Stotts pulled? Who was the player that Terry Stotts kind of scolded or appeared to, at least on the court publicly? Who is the player that caused Terry Stotts to look toward the ceiling, to grimace, to whatever? It was use of Nurkic. So, accountability. I, you know, I don't know. I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to say, I'm not going to say he's incorrect, but the accountability, if there was some to be taken over the years in the Stotts regime, somebody didn't take that accountability very well. I raise an eyebrow a little bit at that. Now, I think the center of the comments from Nurkic's point of view is, I'm going to be more involved with the ball and on offense and defense. I'm looking forward to the challenge. I'm going to get more shots and passes. Before you go there. Yeah. Before you go there, because I have that here too. But before you get to that, I wanted to comment on what you just said. Accountability keeps getting thrown around. That word keeps getting thrown around. And it's obviously something that has been, that Chauncey's been saying from the get-go. The players are obviously picking up on it. In Chauncey's media availability, 
let me see if I can find the quote here. He basically said that, you know, when he's reviewing game tape and things like that, that he's not afraid to call guys out by name. He said, what I would call it is put an address on it. I've played for a lot of coaches that would say, we've got to do a better job. He goes on to say, I'm going to put an address on it. Nobody wants to be the star of the tape next day. So it sounds to me like this whole accountability thing that everybody keeps talking about comes down to him being willing to call out the players, which is is kind of implying that that wasn't happening. But I don't know that it it wasn't happening. So it, it's, it's interesting that that's what keeps being grabbed at. So I, I feel like we're missing something in this story here. Like, I feel like we're missing a piece of what this actually means. Um, I hope that at some point in all of this, you know, the next time there's a press conference or media or whatever, somebody will ask about this because I would like to know a little bit more why everybody's gravitating toward that. It seemed to me like Stotts was calling guys out when they needed to be called out, but maybe I'm missing something. Yeah, I think it's not going to happen with the press, you know, granularity. And here's why. I think the most likely explanation is that, and I think players were held accountable in the Stotts regime as long as they were underneath the big three. In other words, I believe Al Farouk Aminu, Mo Harkless, uh, the young guys, as part of their development, were all absolutely held accountable and developed. Now, I can't, I was not in that locker room, but it's not, you know, the Blazers didn't make the kind of progress they did without some kind of accountability there. And especially that's true for the young players and the underneath players, many of whom, by the way, had their best seasons in Portland. I mean, Aminu is a huge example. Like, he literally had the best seasons he ever had in yeah. Portland. Ennis Cantor had good years. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, I'm not sure he was entirely held accountable, but he also had, you know, excelled. There's there's some kind of responsibility going on there. Here's the thing. The guys that you have a hard time holding accountable are the guys who are pouring in, you know, 23 to 28 points a game for you because you can't replace them. They're right. also supposed to know on their own what they do. And when the team is called to do something, it's the responsibility of the leader without being called out to then lead that. When someone says this team needs to do something, supposedly or theoretically in Damian Lillard's ear, it's supposed to be, bing, I need to get this team to do something because I'm player number one. I know I don't know how much that was happening. I, I I tend to believe that Dame kind of takes that seriously, right? But that does not involve the coach calling out Dame in front of everyone, which is a much harder thing to do. Or by the way, CJ McCollum. And as we just covered, if he did it to use of Nurkic, I don't think it was received real well, is my guess. So that yeah. is a big check to write, and let's see if he's able to cash it, not only personally, but how many times can you sit in a locker room and highlight the defensive assignment that Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum missed in front of everybody before your stars who are making 35 to $43 million this year and could play for literally anyone in this league. I mean, it's pretty dicey at what point what reaction they're going to have to you. Yeah, I do think a difference maker here, and, and maybe this is inaccurate, but my impression is that having been a player himself and having that respect, you know, a lot of these guys have commented on that, that he comes from 
you know, having been in their shoes. I wonder if it will be received, if that criticism will be received maybe easier because of that. It's that whole saying of those who can't teach. There are times where it's got to be, and again, I'm, I'm not a professional athlete, but there's got to be a sense in which you're sitting there week after week after week and your coach is telling you, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you did this wrong. And I'm not saying this is necessarily true of the guys we have, but I, there's got to be a sense in which, especially these guys that have some ego, well, you're not doing, well, you never played. Like, who are you to sit here and tell me this week after week after week? So I wonder if there's going to be a sense of respect that's established early on because of that. I wonder if he'll be able to come to them in a way that's different, having been previously a player. And I also wonder if that gives him a different perspective as to how to approach it, having been a player himself and having gone through that. I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see as the season goes on how this goes and how it's taken. Yeah, it might. First of all, we don't have evidence that they necessarily tuned out Stotts. Uh, no, and no, no, was and a that's player not what I'm too, saying. Right. But Chauncey was a point guard. So, right. I mean, he understands that guard position. So I get it. That could be a benefit. That's to clarify. You clarified that a little bit better. Thank you. Right. That said, I think that might get you in the door at the very beginning, but very quickly that's going to go away. And it will be shown by either results or no results. And if it's no results, that's not going to get him listened to longer. And here's the thing. You got Yusuf Nurkic on one hand saying this offense is running more through me, basically. That is, this is my time. I'm getting more touches. I'm going to be the hub of the offense. If the Blazers win consistently, that might work. But if the Blazers start losing, and let's say Damian Lillard, Chauncey Billups says, hey, Dame, we don't need those ISO looks. We don't need you shooting logo shots. I want you to put the ball through Nurkic and then let the offense roll. You might get it back, but he's the one who's running on a lot of sets. And Dame's scoring goes down three, four, five points a game. He gets fewer touches. And the Blazers are losing. Dame goes, I'm getting less points. I'm not controlling this offense. The coach is telling me not to shoot my shot, that I'm not. I'm still the number one option, but I don't have the green light. You're, you're curtailing me, and we're losing. So I'm doing worse, and the team is not doing any better. At that point, I don't think there's anything a coach can say that's going to save that. And that's the tightrope that I think Stotts walked, and Billups is going to have to walk it too. It doesn't matter what his credentials are or what the hopes are. When he gets in that locker room, it is going to be win- or Dame's going to take over. And there's not a lot of wiggle room in between there. I didn't mean to cut you off from what you were going to say about Nurk and, and his quote about being more involved with the ball. Go ahead on that. No, you're, you're just fine. I just covered it. Like, and, and it's going to be fascinating seeing these expectations because it's really clear from Nurkic. And the other thing from Nurk, though, what happens if that gets, what happens if it doesn't work and then, you know, Billups pulls it back or Lillard pulls it back? says, hey, we tried it. This just isn't working. You got to go back to touching the ball less and you're not going to be a hub of the offense. We want you to get offensive rebounds and, uh, you know, stay in there as a threat, big guy, and play really hard on defense. Does anybody get the feeling that Nurkic is going to respond to that better than he responded to it from Stotts just because there's a different coach? And by the way, he's in the last year of his contract and needs a new one. And by the way, he can go wherever he wants at the end of this season if the Blazers don't re-up him. Does anyone think this ends happily if they have to do that? So if they don't do it and, and it doesn't work, then they kind of lost Nurkic halfway. If they do do it, have they lost a little bit of Lillard and McCollum? Uh, and if it doesn't work, where are they? None of this is solved by anything that was said by any of the people in media day. Yeah, it's I mean, it, it's it's real easy to say the things that 
that they're saying. And I, I, I truly think that they're excited and they're on board with this. I just want to see how it's going to play out over time. I mean, you read this and you hear these things that are being said and, and you listen to the interviews that are happening and, and you get excited. It's, it's easy to get excited. It's easy to hear, okay, they've got a plan. This is what we're going to do and get excited. The one that I am probably the most excited about and the one that I think of all the changes that were made is, is going to be the biggest difference maker is Larry Nance Jr. I wanted to read this specifically. I thought was really interesting. You know, Larry Nance Jr. is coming from another team. He's coming from the Cavs and they're a team that played against us. So he's played against Dame and CJ and that offers a unique perspective. And I thought that this was really cool. This is a direct quote from him. As a defensive mind coming in to play these guys, meaning Dame and CJ, was always a nightmare because you have to pick up both of them so high as soon as they cross the court. Across half court, so those two are top two, if not top one backcourt in the league. They're incredible, and they've, they have been for the past few years. I'm going to keep saying whatever they need me to do is what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to be tremendously helpful when teams start to blitz either one of those two, blitz as in trap. And I think that's where I'm really going to help on the offensive end, making plays go downhill, going four on three once those guys get trapped. We've thought about it a lot, and this is going to be a really good fit for me. I really like hearing this from him. I think he's a good defensive pickup. And I think that, you know, it it makes me excited at the idea of having more defense. He goes on to say something that I think is of value. Well, actually, first, let me let you respond to that. Yeah. And it's not entirely an either or. I get it. Those of you who are yelling at your car dashboard or into your earbuds that it could be both. But hold on a second. Dame and CJ are top two or top one as soon as they cross the half court, right? They're dangerous from everywhere. We get this from one perspective. But then we get, hey, wait a minute. We don't want to be shooting so many of those quick threes. We want to run the ball in the middle of the court and have Nurkic catch it and have a threat and pass it out, which inherently slows down the offense and takes away some of that threat that Nance is talking about. So which is it? And here's what I mean. It's like you can't say everything. If things are going to change, they're going to change. And my point is there's going to be a benefit to that, hopefully, but there's also going to be a cost to it. And in media day, all anybody wants to talk about is the benefit because everything sounds good when you say it from a podium. But when you get it on the court, that cost uh, benefit thing doesn't always work out as nicely as you think. Also, you got to deal with the reality Okay, this is not a new idea that a guy would dive when one of the guards is trapped. But you know what? Neither one of those guards is really good throwing the lob or any the, even the interior pass to a penetrator. This is little, literally what Derek Jones Jr. was brought in for. There's nobody that you want to have cutting down the baseline or across the wing more than him. You can throw it up within six light years of the rim and he's going to go up and, and dunk it down. How much did it happen last? year in the half court never right so i i hope this does kind of work oh and by the way yusuf nurkic is sitting there going i'm the hub of the offense which means he's sitting there now in the middle of the court where's nance gonna run to i mean you already got the center and his defender in there some of this is gonna have to sort itself out and again i know it's not entirely an either or but I'm hearing a lot of stuff which sounds like player A is saying this is going to happen, player B is saying this is going to happen, and we all know that the Blazers were dangerous because C, D, and E used to happen. 
So what is it? Yeah, it's one of those things where we can speculate and they can speculate all we want. You know, they can sit here and come up with these plans and we can sit here and say, well, we think this is going to happen. But until they get on the court and start facing actual opponents, we're not going to know how this shakes out. You know, even all the talk of the new coach and how exciting this is and whatever, like we don't know what he's going to be. He might be the best coach that this team has ever seen. He might be awful. We don't know because one, we don't have a lot to go on as he has little experience. And two, this is the, the season hasn't started. A lot of this stuff we're going to see once things get up and running and, and we get going, we'll start to see what this looks like. Right. And honestly, I'll tell you the truth. Here you go. Here's what matters. How's Dame doing? I mean, that's all we can say everything you want about all the plans and all the dreams or whatever. How is Damian Lillard doing? Is he excelling and is the team winning? Those are the two questions. And if one of those things doesn't happen, the Blazers are in trouble. If both of those things don't happen, whatever the coaching staff or anyone else planned is an utter disaster. And that's, that's the bottom line. So uh, all of this I mean, everybody's saying, I can contribute, I can do this, we're going to try this, you're going to try this. Okay, go ahead and try it. But it's still about Dame, and it's still about the number of victories, and nothing is going to substitute for that. The other quote that I want to pull from this that I thought was worth noting, again, Larry Nance Jr., talking about the first conversation he ever had with Chauncey Billups. And I think that this is really, uh, this is promising. And I think it's a good way to think about this going forward. And this is, this is again, a direct quote. The first conversation I had with Chauncey Billups was like, hey, look, this team was the sixth seed in the Western Conference, which is a monster of a conference, and was number 28 in defense last year. When you think about it, it's a ludicrous stat. It's ridiculous. And so he goes, that's my main focus, is we have these incredible offensively gifted guards, and we can surround them with guys that we don't have to be number one in defense. Get us to the middle of the pack or slightly above. A number three offense and a top 10 defense, that's a recipe for success, and that's one of the things that I'm here to do. I think that this is more realistic than maybe some of what is being floated out there and circulated out there. And I think he's absolutely right with this. We don't have to be... We don't have to go from number 28 to number one in defense or number five in defense. If we can go from number 28 to number 15, you know, if we can go to to the middle of the pack, to the middle of, of the NBA and defense and maintain our offense ability, our, our offensive abilities, maintain that, you know, top three offense, that's going to do really well. That's a huge improvement. And that could do really well. The question is, have we done what we need to do to go from a number 28 defense to a number 15 defense? I don't know. And I'm not sure they know either. I think that they're trying. I think that they're, you know, they've acquired some players that maybe have a little bit more defense in mind. And and I think that that's worthwhile. I think that, you know, anytime there's change in coaching staff like this and a change of mindset, regardless of how that comes out, change is not a bad thing in a situation where we were essentially plateaued, where we were in we were in this place we were in and we weren't getting better. It's not a bad thing to make change because at this point, you know, it gives a little bit of excitement, it it gives hope and it brings this kind of new attitude to the team. So hopefully between the the coaching changes between the focusing on the defense and because, and, and 
I could be wrong. Correct me here if I'm wrong. But it did not feel to me like even though Stott's new defense was an issue, it didn't get talked about a ton as far as his plan to fix it. It seemed like that, yeah, it was acknowledged that, yeah, our defense struggled. But there wasn't really a whole lot of planning for that, it didn't seem. So I'm hopeful that with these little changes that they've made, with the excitement that we seem to be seeing coming out of the players that we've had that were not excited at the end of last season, that at the end of last season, we're ready to throw in the towel on this team. And then the the coaching changes, I'm hoping that those things will be enough to bring our defense up. We'll see. Again, this is one of those things that sounds really good on paper and sounds easy to do. But the problem is you can't step on the same spot in the river twice, as they say, that there's cause and effect in everything. Last year, they were fourth in offensive efficiency. They were 12th, I believe, in margin, like, you know, uh, point margin per game. It's hard to get much better than fourth. He said third, so that's a slight improvement. They were about statistically tied for third, so you could say third or fourth. The point being, you have to keep all of that up in order to make this theory work. You have to finish, you can't lose anything on offense. And then you also have to radically improve your defense. Even if you do that, you're already kind of 12th. There is obviously room. They're not anywhere close to elite, but it's not like they were 20th. All right. It's not like they're going to make a huge jump. They actually have to work really, really hard to get much higher than sixth. I mean, it's not a, it's not an even gradient. It's not like if we do this increment, we'll get from 12th to 11th and the same increment from 11th to 10th and equal increments all the way up. The road gets really steep once you get to the elite teams, right? You, you're, you might be able to improve from 12th to 8th fairly simply. But if you want to improve from 12th to second, you got to be the Milwaukee Bucks. You got to be the Los Angeles Lakers. And that's the point. If you're talking about the third best offense and a top 10 defense, how many teams do that? I mean, the Golden State Warriors did when they were a dynasty. Uh, The Spurs often did something similar, right? But we're literally talking generational teams doing that. And then the teams that do that are, you know, what the Lakers, I think, did it also the year they won the championship. There's not a lot of teams that accomplish this thing where we that we think is automatically going to happen because the Blazers got Larry Nance Jr. Okay, it doesn't work that way. So I will, I mean, hat tip from me, and we're not worthy if they pull it off. I'm just saying that what he's really talking about is making a leap from mediocre to great, great, great elite in contention. That doesn't that that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen that often. So let's hope they it can do it. But that often, but it's possible. Okay, but it's but every team is saying some version of this. You know what? Right. There's another team but out ours there. Ours might be the one that does it. Chicago's out there going, you know, if we can just up ourselves like three slots in offense and 10 or so in defense, we actually got a great team. Right? This is the this is one of the versions of we're just one player away, one star player away. Well, everybody's one star player away except the worst teams in the league. All that means is you're I- mediocre. I don't know, Dave. I, I I see where you're going with that, but I think that there's I think it's different than saying that because I think that they're laying it out and saying, look, here's our plan, here's what we've done to accomplish this. It's within our reach. And again, they're not saying that it has to be top ten in the league. They're saying let's get to the middle of the pack. Let's not be the worst anymore. And I think that's a reasonable expectation. 
Oh, you. I mean, yeah, it's a reasonable expectation to not be the worst. This is this is going to be what we said this from the start. This is going to be what Neil Olshay uses to justify his coaching transition. Look, the defense improved. Of course it improved because it sucked hard. You can't, there's no way to not improve. Literally, you go down, and by the way, I don't think they were 28th. I think they were 29th uh, in defensive efficiency, if I recall correctly. You've got like one, maybe two slots below you. There's no way that you can't improve. But the thing is, is your improvement significant enough? And can you maintain your offensive potential while doing so? And those are both open questions and not so easily answered. First of all, it's not automatic they're going to do it. Second of all, it's not automatic that if they do it, that it's going to be enough. Because literally what he's talking about, notice how quickly too, we had to go from, well, we just got kind of in the middle of the pack too. Oh no, literally number three offense and top 10 defense. That's what he ended up at. And you're right. If you can do that, you're great. But that's really hard to do. We're just going to go ahead and say we hope it's going to happen. No, of course. I had my summer to be all doom and gloom for a minute. And I got a little, I got, it got a little rough there and I struggled and I wasn't sure that we could do this anymore. But I, you know, I, it, it's a lot more fun with the rainbows and the unicorns, Dave. Join me. <laughs> Join me. Oh, I'm, I, th- you know, I think they have a chance to be better. But I don't think, here's the thing. This is so, like I said, this is a time warp. This is so 2016 talk. This is so 2017 talk. You know, like, oh, we had a chance and everybody goes, yay, yay. We haven't seen it. You know what? We've seen it. You said this, Shiznit, every year. Okay? This is literally the refrain that happens. But we it's have just, a new coach. It's just a new person saying it. But We have a new coach. Yeah. He might be the best coach that's ever coached in the NBA, Dave. You yeah. don't know. Sure, we don't know. And Larry Nance Jr. might stay healthy all the way. And if he does he and develops, I mean, that could be, he could be almost a fourth star here. I mean, I don't discount that. That said, none of that's happened. And until it happens... But we also haven't lost a game yet. Okay, but you know what? We've seen years and years of losing the games. I don't mean they've done badly, but they've not gotten where they said they wanted to go. Nobody has ever started the year saying, you know what? I think we're going to be pretty mediocre this year. And if we do better than mediocre, we'll we'll be okay. But our baseline is mediocre, right? No one says that. Everybody every year says stuff like this, and we've literally seen that it doesn't happen happen and every year someone is right and someone wins a championship and this year it might be us you don't know okay the lakers were right the the bucks were right it's just, not very just, hard to predict that they have a really good chance of being right. I'm not the unicorn murderer. I'm the one who brushes them for you. Little sparkles all over my floor because of these unicorns. But uh, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's like, you can't be telling us just shut up and brush those unicorns because this is going to work. I'm glad you're enthusiastic. But damn, I wish someone would just come out and say, you know what? This is going to be a lot of hard work. This is going to take a lot of commitment, and we aren't even close to being there yet, and we're going to have to absolutely come together and, to a person, grind every single practice and every single night to have a ghost of a chance of making this work, but that's what we're going to do, because we're not talented enough, and we're not, we don't have a track record, and we're looking 
from below at the Suns and the Lakers and a lot of fantastic teams that we have no rational prayer of beating. But you know what? We're going to outwork everybody instead of here's the miracle signing that's going to transform everything. Can you imagine how much more interesting media would media day would be if everybody came out and told the truth and said exactly what they were thinking? That could be fun. So CJ McCollum, moving on to CJ McCollum. This was an interesting one to me because, you know, there's been a lot of rumors about trades and I feel like, and, and he's always the target of those. CJ McCollum this offseason has been the constant target of trade rumors and he's handled it with grace and I can really appreciate that. So this is what he said when asked about all of the trade rumor stuff. He said, there's going to be fans that love you. There's going to be fans that aren't fans of you. And there's going to be fans that like you, but would still like to see you traded. And then I guess he laughed about it and said he understood that where fans were coming from because he himself is a fan of the Cleveland Browns, the football team. He said, I appreciate fans being passionate. As a fan of my Browns, I'm sure I've said some of the same things that they're saying about me and about some of my friends who play. You know, I think this was a really good perspective. And and I think for CJ to recognize that, recognize that people can like him and still make comments about having him traded and that this comes with the territory, I have a lot of respect for that attitude. And I, I think it's a healthy attitude. CJ McCollum, regardless of where he plays, regardless of how he plays, will forever be one of my favorite human beings in the NBA. I think he's fantastic. I think he's got a good head on his shoulders. I think he's brilliant. And I think long after his playing career is over, he is going to be very successful in whatever he does. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. It's a great line. And I'm glad that, I mean, he handled that perfectly. Thank you, CJ. I mean, it's just, I agree with everything you said, Dia. At the same time, you know, the cynical part, the, the flip side, I mean, $29 million he gets wherever he plays. <laughs> so, and also, look, I think at one time, McCollum might have taken being traded out of Portland as something of a slight. Like, hey, I still had potential. I still had, you know, we're still on the upswing. You needed me. Why are you trading me? I halfway think, and I don't know, I've never asked him. I don't want to get in his head. But looking at the career arc, where he is, what he's accomplished, what the team has accomplished or not accomplished, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world for CJ to be traded anymore. I mean, for him personally. I think, you know, probably he'd handle it with more equanimity than he would would have three years ago. Be like, hey, you know, okay, we've had a great run and I'm going to miss a lot of things about it, but a fresh start is great. I think that's part of it. I wouldn't guess there's a lot of bitterness left if he gets moved at the age of 30. Um, But again, that doesn't take away a single thing from what he said. It was a brilliant quote and uh, and I think an honest one. And uh, I love that. CJ is just one of those people that you root for no matter where he is. I think there's a, I think, whoa, I think there's a reason that he is in the role of the Players Association president. I think he's perfect for that job because of things like this, because of the attitudes that he has about things like this. I think he's just, I like him a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the Blazers, there's no doubt that having CJ is better than not having CJ just in terms of, forget fit, forget everything else. Having CJ is a good thing for anybody's team. 
Moving on to Norm Powell, you know, again, Norman Powell was a big pickup for us to to keep him. And he had some things to say about that, starting with why he decided to return to the Blazers. And I think that this is just, again, a testament to this team. He said, for me, you have to go where you're most wanted, where you're most loved. Neil and Chauncey, I talked to them a couple times throughout the summer. Neil was very forward about how they felt about me, their plans for me, and the future of the team. Dame and CJ both reached out to me before free agency started to see where my head's at. Dame texted me, told me that he wanted me back here. To get a message like that from him, the franchise player, means everything to me. I'm about loyalty. I'm about working and being committed to the grind, and that's what this team's about. And I want to help them get over that hump. We didn't get a chance to do that last year when they acquired me through the trade for many different reasons. And he said that Damian's Damian Lillard's concerns about the roster were not a, a factor in his decision. He said, I've been around this league enough to know it's a business. I'm not a player who gets caught up in the rumors of what's being said and what's being put there, there throughout the media. Half the reason why I don't like to talk to the media. Just kidding. I wasn't worried about it. He said, I felt like he was going to stay, meaning Damian Lillard. I didn't see a real reason why he'd leave, but he wants to win. But putting the pressure on the organization to make changes that make him feel comfortable enough that we're going to compete for a championship is the biggest thing. I think we made some great moves. Norman Powell is a good piece for us. You know, that we were all talking about that early on in, in the summer, that that was a a game changer for us, you know, whether he was going to resign or not, that if they were not able to resign him, we were in trouble. That was quite possibly the most crucial move that they needed to make this off season. And they accomplished that. And, and it's interesting because ever since we acquired him halfway through last season, people have been talking about the fact that he probably wouldn't stay. Um, I remember that conversation clearly because we were talking about what's the point of trading for Gary Trent jr. When essentially they play the same role and Gary's younger People were saying that probably we wouldn't be able to keep Norm around, but here we are. We kept him. So that that was crucial, and I think, uh, you know, something that I'm really, really glad to see happen. He's now the longest guaranteed contract on the team. So, I mean, he has a different voice to speak with now because he's got a five-year deal. I mean, that outlasts Lillard and McCollum. I believe that he believes that the Blazers want him. I believe that the Blazers gave him that five-year deal for really pretty good money to show that. And they had to because I think he could have gotten, he probably could have gotten comparable money per year on a shorter deal elsewhere. So right. the Blazers play, paid a little bit of a premium to keep him. They had to. He is set now for his career, no matter what happens. And I think that's the goal with this contract for him. And he did it. So now he gets to relax. Now he knows no matter what happens, whether he's traded, uh, whether he stays, or, or who else is traded or stayed, he's taken care of, which allows him to then re relax and concentrate on winning, concentrate on being part of the system that he's now tied to for the next five years, theoretically. So yeah, I thought these quotes reflected that. Um, whether the Blazers really, I mean, the, the operative quote, I've been around this league enough to know it's a business. That cuts always. He knows his contract is a business too. He knows he signed it as a business deal. The stuff on top is nice to hear, but really what it came down to, he got signed to a long-term deal for really quite a bit of money. There we go. Uh, I felt Lillard was going to stay. Didn't see a real reason why he'd leave. Yes, that is true. In 
you know, August and September of 2021. Doesn't mean it's going to be true in December of 2021 or February of 2022, or especially June of 2022. But again, you take it at face value and say, right now, he's saying what we're all saying. Dame probably doesn't get traded right away. All that matters is he's with the team and he gets to play. That's that. So the question is, will things really be different this year? What do you think, Dave? Do you think they're going to be different? Inherently different, yes. New coach will do that. Larry Nance will do that. Especially if they switch it all to the role that Nurkic hopes, that will be different as well. The question is, will it be better? Oh, and by the way, no more Carmelo Anthony and no more Ennis Cantor. That's those are huge differences right there. Will they be better though? Is the operative question. And that is all that matters. And that I do not think we know yet. I, I we don't have a go. Uh, first of all, again, injuries. Uh, Nance Jr. is uh, has had quite a few of them. Yusuf Nurkic has had quite a few of them. That's two thirds of your big three in the front court right there that you have question marks about. Uh, you have over thirty years old now, Damon CJ. That's different. You have Norman Powell full time at small forward all year, where teams know this is coming. Not halfway through the season where they would switch their game plan mid season and. By the way, as soon as Denver switched their game plan against them in the playoffs, that lineup didn't look real great. So, I mean, yes, it's going to be different. Is it better? I I don't know. And uh, my gut says it's probably going to shake out to be there will be differences, but there will not be a huge, huge improvement. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that we're going to improve. I'm anticipating at least a second round playoffs. I'm hoping for Western Conference Finals. I mean, if we're being honest, I'm hoping for championships, but I think that second round is reasonable with this roster. I think we have improved some since last season, and I think last season, I think we've improved. I think second round is is reasonable. So I'm going to go with, yeah, it's going to be a, a better year than it was last year. Okay. So I will forewarn you that last year's record was 42 and 30. That's in 72 games. That's about a 58% win percentage. In order to equal that, to do the same they did last year, they're going to have to win 48 games this year. So you think they're going to improve on 48? So Vegas betting has them at, I think, 42. And I would definitely take over. I think I think they'll do better than that. I think I would take the over on 42. And I, I think, would take it on 48 as well. I think a lot of that would, I mean, some of that was influenced by the Dame talk and the general negative public feeling about the Blazers, that that number had to come in low because there's not a lot of people who are going, Trailblazers, put them at 47 wins and I'm going to take the over. They would People would weigh under that. So I think the 42 was a safe uh, place for the odds makers to land because you're going like, hey, you know, they, they're going to do better than that if you're a Blazers fan and then the people who are pessimistic can still go, that's eh, a high enough number I can take the under. They probably split there. However, 48 wins, that's a tougher ask. I mean, you're getting really close to 50. You say the Blazers are going to be a 50-win team or better? Yes. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, Dave, I am always going to err on the side of optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, I can't, I just, I am. And so, yeah, I would say that they are. I would say, I think in all honesty, trying really hard to take my own bias out of it. 
I think this is a team that very well may come out and surprise people. I think that this is a team that's going to perform better than maybe we expect them to. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the number I had in my mind coming into this was 49. So technically, so that's close. better. Technically, that's better. More, <laughs> yeah. My range for them is between 47 and 49, provided that they have mild routine injuries. You know, their health is pretty good. Doesn't have to be perfect. If their health is perfect, they may, they probably get to 50. But I'm assuming somebody's going to, you know, they're going to have the normal dings and bumps and some players are going to miss some games. They're going to have to dig into that minimum contract salary bottom part of the bench. But all things being equal, I'm going to go with 49, but 47 wouldn't shock me. Much above 50, I do not expect. I'm going to say 52. I'm going to go optimistic here. I'm going to say 52. I think that they're going to be better than they were last year. I think the first year with this coach, I think everybody probably feels like they have a lot to prove. And I think that they're going to come out and we're going to see some things that we aren't necessarily expecting. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with 52. I would be less surprised to see them win 43 than I would be to see them win 53. I'll be shocked if they win 53, which is close to your 52. I would not be shocked to see them win 43. I think there are a lot of ways that they get under the 48. I, I think there are very few that they get that far over. For context, 52 wins would be about a 63% winning percentage, which is roughly two out of every three games. I'm not sure I see this team winning two out of every three games. It's, it's kind of I've tough. got hope, Dave. I've got hope. Well, it's right about 54. Between 54 and 55 games would be two out of every three. So you're not, you're not that far below. Uh, I, it's a tough ask. I, let's put it this way. I'll be overjoyed if they do that. Unless, of course, there's inflation. I mean, because every season is different. Uh, there is obviously a scale in which these things run. But some, some years, 50 wins is hard. Some years, a lot of teams get 50 wins. We'll have to see. It's always tricky. But I, I just, I don't have a good feeling about 52, 53, 54. It's, it's just, I don't think they're going to make it. All right. That's fair. We'll see. We'll check back in and we'll see. Absolutely. Well, have we got anything else? No Ben Simmons this week? No, no big improvement or not improvements. No big uh, developments. Nothing that we know, you know, other than what we talked about last week. So I think I think we're good there. This was a lot. Well, let's see. I have some professional development stuff from most of the morning a week from about six days from now when this airs, next Wednesday when this airs. And I also have a lot of professional development stuff on October 14th when I am going to be, in both cases, away from keyboard and can't get to it. So either next Wednesday or October 14th, that'll be the day the Blazers trade for Ben Simmons, one of those two. <laughs> well, we'll see. I did read, I can't, now I cannot remember where I read it. I think it was in that athletic article. It was, it was in the athletic article that, I covered today for Blazers Edge that Jason Quick wrote. There was a very short line in there about how the Blazers are interested in a one-for-one -one trade, which tells me that they want to trade straight across the board, and I, I don't know if that's going to happen. They can get a one-for-one -one trade really easily. Just trade Damian Lillard for Ben Simmons. Philadelphia yeah, will not, do that. That's not who they're talking about. I, I was comfortably sure that that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I mean, yeah. I guess at this point, obviously, Ben Simmons has has been very clear about the fact that he's not going to play in Philadelphia. So, if Philadelphia can't get a deal that they want, 
and they get to the point where that's, you know, that's they it could happen. It's possible. Yeah, the problem is Blazers, I mean, draft picks. Uh, the Blazers, I, I think other teams have a lot more draft picks. Uh, to but, throw it but are they willing to offer it at this point? Well, they should be if it's a one for one. You've got to throw something in. I mean, I cannot imagine the Sixers are going to take CJ McCollum for Ben Simmons. I don't. I, mean, I just. Can't, I don't think that happens. Ben Simmons has kind of put him in a in, in between a rock and a hard place. I don't think. I don't think back. Philly moves. I mean, Philly. These are the kings of we win the deal. You know, these are the kings of smart value moves. I think. I think they'd rather sit on Simmons than trade him for a contract that was big for a player that's not really going to help them. I mean, at least you have the potential of trading him down the road for something you like, or some team gets desperate. Why would you take that deal now if you don't think CJ puts you over the top? And you have to pay him, you know, $30 million this year, 33, and then 35. I mean, that's a lot of commitment if you don't think the player is going to do it for you. I think CJ has a lot of value to Blazers fans and a lot of value as a person, but it doesn't, all you have to do to make CJ a negative contract is presume that he's not really going to help your particular team win. Then there's no way, no way possible that you want CJ because he's not getting better and he doesn't bring a ton of things to the table besides the scoring and maturity and his awesome personality, that CJ-ness. He doesn't bring defense to the table. Um, he's not going to be your point guard. He, that there's just It becomes a losing proposition very quickly unless you think he specifically makes you better. I'm not sure Philadelphia is going to feel that. I guess we'll see in the days coming. If the Blazers can do it, that's awesome. I will, I will dance to Watusi. Then we can start talking about 54 wins. I mean, 55, 56. We'll see, Dave. We'll see. All right. So, well, I guess that wraps us up then. Uh, still Simmons-less, but with win predictions of 49 and 52. Uh, predict your own wins in the comments section at Blazer's Edge. And we are going to see you next week when we will have all the optimism from training camp and all the new schemes that are going to revolutionize the Blazers' attack and make sure that they win at least 65 games, if not 72 or maybe 84. I mean, the new schemes are guaranteed to bring at least 86 regular season wins this year. I, I, I'm sure we are going to hear some version of that over the next week. Until then, uh, for Dia Miller, I am Dave Deckard, and we will see you again soon. A hater sees an opening down the lane, moves towards the hoop, but then Dia comes out of nowhere to swap the shot attempt away, saying, get that weak stuff out of here. Dave scoops up the loose ball. Now it's a fast break the other way with Dia. She's flying down the court. Dave comes here and out of you. She jams it. Boom, shakalaka. The crowd is on its feet saluting Dia. I tell you, if she isn't the rookie of the year, they really ought to just stop giving the award. What a talent. 